Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Today we are joined by Tom Nichols, and we really need him to help us sort through what is happening in the world today. We're going to be focusing on Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And of course, warning to our listeners, we're putting this episode up very quickly after it was recorded, but things might change very rapidly. Now, Tom is an expert on international affairs. His work deals with issues involving Russia, nuclear weapons, and national security affairs. His wheelhouse, his area of expertise could not be more timely for all of us. He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic and proprietor of Peace Field, a newsletter at The Atlantic. I encourage you all to think about subscribing. He was a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and at the Harvard Extension School. He was previously a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs, and the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He's the author of numerous books, including Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within Our Democracy. Tom, welcome to Passing Judgment. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're recording this episode on February 24th, and the main story on the Atlantic's homepage reads, Calamity Again. The banner headline from the New York Times today says, Ukraine under full-scale attack. I think a lot of people have seen the headlines, but I'm hoping you could help us back up for just a moment and talk about how it came to this. I've seen reporting this morning that you know people were taken off guard, that a few days ago people were still holding out hope. Could you help us walk through, obviously not hundreds of years of history, but what you think of as the precipitating events and whether or not this was inevitable? Well, the precipitating event for Vladimir Putin, as it turns out, was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I think one of the things that's really become clear is that Putin, whether he always felt this way or whether this is something, you know, whether we're witnessing the world's worst midlife crisis um, is hard to know. But it's not really about Ukraine. It's about two things. It's about democracy, which he is simply not going to allow on Russia's borders, especially practiced by 40 million Slavs. And it's about the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he clearly grieves. I mean, he he makes reference to it constantly. Um, he simply is not past that. And in his view, Ukraine, along with Belarus, which of course is his only ally, belongs under the domination of the Kremlin. And I think he feels like, you know, he's 68, 69 years old, which for a Russian male is pretty old. And uh, this is his legacy. This is what he's going to build, even if it means going to war. When you put it that way, it almost feels like a parent whose child has dismissed their wishes and gone abroad, and the parent is just never going to give up. And like by hook or crook, by force, they will get that child back. And I don't mean for the Ukraine to sound like a child, but it makes it sound like this was really inevitable. Is there anything that the international community you think could have done or should have done in the lead up to what we're seeing today? Yeah, that's that's so hard to say. I mean, I suppose if Ukraine, like the Baltic Republics, for example, if Ukraine had kind of gotten itself together in the first 15 or 20 years after independence and created a stronger central government, less corruption, less 
you know, division um, created a stronger military, maybe it would have given Putin pause, but probably not, because no matter how big Ukraine is, it's always going to be overmatched by its Russian neighbor to the east. I think so much of this, I, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about a week ago where I said so much of this is really just driven by Putin's internal desires. And yeah. I, I suspect that a lot of the people around him don't even know why he's doing this. And so I just think we we shouldn't overestimate the degree to which we have control of a situation like this. One of the things I've been telling people after you know a career of teaching international relations and foreign policy studies is sometimes all your choices in international affairs are just bad. Yeah. Um, you know, Americans, I think, have this tendency because we we really think, you know, we can always work things out. We can negotiate. We can make deals. Um, sometimes you just run into bad people who are going to do bad things. And this is one of those times. Right. We're left with limited options here. And there's one question that I think, and I don't want to spend too much time on what could have happened, but maybe where are they now, which is thinking about this international response. A lot of people, I think, are looking at the UN and saying, what's going on? The invasion began, I think, during an emergency meeting of the Security Council, where people were begging Russia not to do this, and then basically breaking news while they were having the conversation, Russia has invaded. Yeah. Does the UN have a role that it can play? Are they between like everybody else, just bad options? Is there something that going forward, there's a role for them here that they can concretely do? No. You know, and I, I don't say that happily. Um, remember, right now, the, the presidency of the Security Council is held by Russia, which right. is one of the permanent five that has a veto. Um, so, you know, nothing's going to get through the UN that Russia doesn't want to get through the UN. Um, I think this is a time, I think the, the real players here are going to be the international financial community, because the only yeah. thing you do is to really choke off the money and access of Russia's elites. You're not going to hurt Putin. Putin just doesn't care. And he's made that clear. I'm actually worried about the guy's mental stability, to be honest with you. But there are people around Putin who, you know, they don't want their children sent home from European universities. They don't want their visas canceled. They don't want their assets in other countries frozen or seized. Uh, they don't want to be kicked out of the international banking system and be unable to move their assets around. I mean, this is, you know, if you're going to if you're going to do this, then you can't screw around with it. You've got to you've, if you're going to hurt the people that are carrying out this policy, then you've got to be serious about it. So um, this is, but I don't think there's a military solution and I don't think there is a UN solution here. So you answered a lot of my questions, which is taking options off the table. You've taken military off, you've taken UN off. And this is something that I wanted to ask you about and that I keep reading over the last few days, which is, I think you used the phrase choke off money and access. Can you walk us through exactly what that looks like? Well, for example, kicking the Russians out of SWIFT, out of the right. international, you know, banking accords, um, you know, finding finding out uh, what kind of property and assets these um, these Russian Kremlin elites have in places like London, and whether you know these things are held legally, and you know, maybe part of sanctioning them is just to freeze those assets. 
the Russians, you know, for people who claim to be Russian patriots, these elite Russians spend a whole lot of time and money outside of Russia. And so, you know, part of that is making sure they can't travel, um, you know, denying them visas. These are kind of things that we were doing with the so-called Magnitsky sanctions as well. Right. But, you know, we're just going to have to ramp that up. And, and really, again, when it comes to Putin, our leverage is just going to be limited, sadly. So do you think that the international community, the U.S., has the stomach for the type of sanctions that you're talking about? I hear from you, and it makes total sense to me, that this is the kind of only good out of the option of kind of least bad options. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we will do this? We collectively, meaning the U.S. and the international community, are these sanctions on the horizon, or do you think it's unlikely to come to fruition? I think we have the stomach for it. The question is, do all of our allies and other countries in the world have the stomach for it? I mean, part of the problem with sanctions, and I honestly, I don't think sanctions are going to do very much, but they're better than nothing, um, is that you have to plug the leaks in them. You, you have to make mm-hmm. sure that, you know, um, I mean, if if everybody agrees to do this, except, I don't know, you know, Germany or Greece or whoever, Cyprus, whatever, um, you know, then, then you're that by definition is not a very good sanctions regime. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's the best we can do. And I, I think American diplomacy on this has been actually pretty good. Um, I think the other thing we can do, and one thing the Americans, I think there's a good question here, whether how far the Americans want to go with this. Um, we in the Brits can have already started the process of showing what kind of intelligence we have about what's going on in Moscow. The other possibility here is to start ratting out, again, these Kremlin elites and where their money is and, you know, revealing that to their own people. Um, There are a lot of ways we could do that. Um, They'll take that pretty personally, but, you know, they've started a war in the middle of Europe, so the time for bygones has passed. Yeah, the time for hurt feelings seems uh, a a while ago now. Now... While we're, you know, trying to walk through implementing these sanctions, you've said the U.S. does have the stomach for it, that we need to get everybody on board, basically, so there aren't holes in the canoe when it comes to sanctions. Can I think a lot of people have anxiety about what the short-term, the mid-term, and the long-term looks like. So from your perspective, what do you think the next few weeks looks like in the Ukraine and in more broadly? Does it stay in the Ukraine? What does this country look like 14 days from now? Boy, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, you know, the problem is that war, I taught at a war college for 25 years. Um, one of the things that we always emphasize to the students is war is risk and unpredictability and fog and friction. Mm-hmm. The thing I'm watching for in the next few weeks are Black swan events, you know, terrible mistakes or miscalculations. I'm also curious to know just how far Putin is going to take his commitment here to regime change. I mean, he's clearly headed as we speak, and we may know more about this by the time your listeners hear us, but he's headed for Kiev. And I'm kind of curious, what is he going to do once he gets there? March into the presidential palace, uh, you know, put Zelensky under arrest? I, I have no idea. And I think Typical of Putin, and and one thing I really want to stress, typical of Putin, this is a very emotional 
thing. The problem I think a lot of people have is that they think Putin is a strategic genius and a chess player. You know, Garry Kasparov, the Russian dissident, who I think knows a thing or two about chess as one of the greatest players in the history of the game, has said many times, he's not a chess player. I mean, he's really not that smart and not that organized. And so I think a lot of what's happening in Ukraine here is that he's just decided he's going to throw the dice. And um, that that's a, extraordinarily dangerous. I don't know what's more worrisome, the idea that he's not strategic and not a chess player or the idea that he is, but I will say- Personally, I will say that I'd rather that he be a chess player because Mm -hmm. guys like that know when to cut their losses and to, you know, rationally and carefully protect themselves. Um, I'm concerned that he, you know, I used to think of him as a much more cool customer, but um, over the past six, seven years, um, I've really come to think that he's actually quite emotional and volatile. You're not giving us much other than heartburn and a lot of good information here. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be, um, you know, Dr. Buzzkill today, but there aren't a whole lot of good or encouraging things to come out of this right now. Well, you know, I'm a lawyer, so that's usually my role in life. So I appreciate you playing that today. <laughs> and I do want to ask before we let you go, I think a lot of people who are listening to the podcast, who are watching from the U.S. are thinking, how is this going to affect us? And I know you've said, and I think that's exactly right, that war is just by definition unpredictable. So we can't play out exactly what this looks like. But are there options, I would say, or things you're worried about where when it comes to how this affects our lives in the U.S., that this goes beyond what I already think is within the realm of possibility, which is economic changes, inflation with respect to certain products, Mm -hmm. um, cyber security issues. Could you play out for this where some options where you think this might be going, how it might affect our daily lives? Well, I think you just went through it. I mean, the average American, uh, unless this becomes a nuclear crisis, which I hesitate to even think about. But for the average person, my best advice is don't look at your 401k for a while. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the market's going to tank for a while. It will come back, I'm sure, as markets do, even after a war. Um, you know, gas is going to be more expensive. So there will be economic blowback in the daily lives of Americans. And even if the United States, even if even if President Biden weren't going to put in any sanctions at all, that's just the reaction of markets to a war breaking out in the middle of Europe. If we do sanctions, then yeah, there will be, I mean, the Americans are going to have to bear uh, uh, some economic pain here. But I think in terms of, you know, your daily life of feeling secure, the only other place I think this could touch the average American is if the Russians succeed in ramping up a lot of really destructive cyber attacks, Mm -hmm. um, which I imagine they will try to do. But, um, you know, for now, the people that really are living with this are the Ukrainians who are literally under the gun. Which, and I kind of hate asking the question at all because, of course, underlying the question is let's focus on us as opposed to let's focus on other people. And now let's focus on all of us, which is you used a word and I heard you say, you know, basically you were reticent to use it, which is nuclear. Um, 
how how concerned are you personally that this is just such a different world than it was before um, so many countries had this power? We heard it was, I think, just a few hours ago where President Putin basically said, I'm paraphrasing here, remember, I have nuclear power. I found right. that very jarring. I'm wondering what your response to that was. Um, that's kind of typical for him. He's done that before. And he preceded this by holding a strategic nuclear exercise, which is typical. Again, they've had these exercises in the past, but the timing of this one was not coincidental. By the time folks hear us, I should have a piece out in the Atlantic about this because I've been trying to think it through. I don't think it's healthy for us to spend a lot of time being really anxious about this as a nuclear crisis, but it's also the reality that something stupid and unforeseen could happen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, somebody fires on somebody else accidentally, um, mis- misidentification, you know, I mean, remember, this is the theater of war where in 2014, um, a bunch of Russian goons with a surface air missile shot down a commercial airliner. Um, stuff like that happens in war zones. Um, so that's that's mostly what I worry about. I'm a little less worried that anything will happen intentionally, although I suppose, you know, if Putin thinks he's losing or taking too many casualties or he wants to try to blame the United States for, uh, you know, some reversal of fortune, he could put his nuclear forces on a heightened state of alert. That's possible. But I think for now, people should, you know, just stay calm. And right now, this is a conventional war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And I think, you know, we're, they're not a NATO ally. We don't actually have a treaty with them. All we can do is, you know, sanction the Russian elite, send arms and money to the Ukrainians and, um, you know, keep it at that, at that level. And it's all, uh, it really all depends on Putin. That's another way of saying they're just, this all comes down to Vladimir Putin. Well, given all that you've told us, that is a scary place to be where it all comes down to Putin. But given your expertise and given what you've told us, I think that makes all the sense in the world. And the last question I'm going to ask you, because I know that this is a very busy day for you, is I heard you say that Russia's main ally is Belarus. And I think a lot of people say, what's going on with China? Will China join up with Russia? I know that Putin just visited China. Do you have a forecast there in terms of what we might see out of China? Yeah. You know, the Chinese um, have a a real talent for nodding politely and then staying out of things like this, Mm. as they did with, you know, the Gulf, both Gulf Wars. Uh, here, I'll try and bring a little bit of levity uh, and, a, and a laugh back to us. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure we've all seen the movie Pulp Fiction. You know, the, the Chinese always remind me of the bartender who turns because there's about to be a fight between Bruce Willis and John Travolta. And they kind of look at him and he says, my name's Paul and this is between y'all. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, the Chinese at the United Nations, for example, the Chinese have become masters of the abstention, you know, when it comes to things like the Gulf War. And they say, hey, you know, we don't support this, but we're also not going to veto it. You stay out. Our, I mean, the Chinese agree with the Russians in one major way, which is sovereign states shouldn't have to care what anybody else in the world thinks about them. So when something like this happens, the Chinese approach is to say, this is between y'all. 
Um, this isn't our problem. So sorry this is happening to you. You know, you guys can all straighten it out. The, the idea that, you know, China is going to like ride into Russia's aid or so. I, I, if anything, I think the Chinese are probably wincing at this saying, you know, this is a real complication in the world that nobody needs because the what the Chinese really like is a very stable and predictable environment for Chinese business. And the only people they want upsetting the international status quo are them mm-hmm. when they choose to. You saw this, for example, with the Chinese in North Korea. People say, oh, the Chinese are going to back North Korea. No, usually the Chinese are kind of wincing and saying, yeah, yeah, they're our friends and you can't touch them. But man, we, you know, sometimes you hate being in the same family with you know, you can't pick your relatives, you know? Um, so uh, in that sense, as allies, the Chinese, I think, find them a headache. And I think in this case, I could be wrong. I mean, I, you know, President Xi's another another guy who's kind of a loose cannon in that sense. Um, but I, I don't think the Chinese are really part of this equation. I think this is a European issue and it's between uh, the Russians and Europe and the United States and the Chinese are probably going to reap a lot of benefits by just sort of sitting back and being quiet and staying out of it. Tom Nichols, on a very busy day, you helped me and I know, therefore, our listeners sort through a lot of the questions that we have about what's going on. I feel really fortunate to have had you here. You can subscribe to Tom's newsletter, Peacefield, which again is a newsletter at The Atlantic. You can also follow him on Twitter at Radio Free Tom. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Levinson Jessica. Tom, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for having me. We wish everybody a peaceful day.